figure it out soon enough. All right, let's turn to First Thessalonians chapter four as we embark upon God's teaching of the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter four. Now the way that I would like to approach this is we are going to ask actually ask Brother Dennis, Dennis if he would swap with me and he was gracious enough to do so. So I'm actually going to take <clears throat> chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and then chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and then he'll finish up the book of First Thessalonians. But that will allow us to have a cohesive study of the doctrine of the rapture, because what I'd like to do at the very end, when we get through chapter 5, verse 11, I'm going to, with the Lord's help, visit uh, the subject of the rapture, topically speaking, and present to us numerous biblical points as to why we would believe I mean it's easy enough to believe in the rapture that's pretty evident because talks, Paul talks about being caught away and so forth but why would we want to believe in a pre-tribulational pre-millennial rapture that can be a little bit more difficult for some folks and so I'd like to visit uh, that topic but it's easier to do that after you have looked at the entire section of the rapture and the second coming the tribulational period as described here in chapter 5 and so uh, with the Lord's help, that's what we'll do. Quick announcement before we get started. We would like to do a special Christmas Eve service on Thursday. Okay, so um, it's going to be, if you've ever been a part of a candlelight service uh, growing up, this is the idea. Now, we're not going to bring in candles into the church. It's a little small in here. might be a fire hazard. So what we're going to do is we're going to use LED candles. So if anyone has, I'm putting out a call for help. If anyone has some LED candles or lanterns, and thank you, Stephanie, um, it doesn't have to be just a candle. You know, it could be a lantern. It could be some other form of light. The idea is to give that, you know, soft, warm light mood and uh, make it feel Christmassy, for lack of better words. So if you have something that you could lend to us temporarily, and uh, we'll go purchase whatever we don't have and need, then that would be great. I know Brother Dennis has got some lights that he's going to lend to kind of shine up the walls and... Um, and everyone could have their own candle if they wanted to and could bring that to provide a little light uh, to sing. We're just going to have a time of reading Christmas scriptures, prophetic scriptures, New Testament scriptures, a lot of singing. And uh, we'll have some special music and then we'll have a challenge probably from Matthew chapter 2 concerning uh, the wise men as well. So I look forward to that. I hope you do as well. Appreciate any help that you can offer uh, on that. So let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, and we will dive into 1 Thessalonians 4. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your coming, and I pray, Lord, that as we look at that this morning, that you would help us to, uh, to take the principles that are here and allow them to change us today, that we might be better uh, equipped, uh, Lord, for your coming, not in a sense of salvation, but in a sense of just practical sanctification, uh, that we might uh, be pleasing, Lord, the work that we're doing when you come and find us. And so we just pray that you'd help us to understand this morning these things that you'd have for us and help us to apply them and encourage our hearts, Lord, we pray, as we consider the fact that at any moment you could return for your saints. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The doctrine of the blessed hope. I call it that because if you look at Titus 2.13, Paul says that we are looking for that blessed hope, which is the rapture, and the glorious appearing, which is the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so um, I've called it the Doctrine of the Blessed Hope. I've used the uh, outline that you have in your student guide. We've stuck with that for this lesson. 
So we see, first of all, Paul's concern in verse 13. Let's go ahead and read down through verses 13 and 15, which is where we'll be this morning, and then finish up verses 16, 17, and 18 next week, Lord willing. Paul says, the Lord says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. And so first of all, we see Paul's concern. He says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, I would not have you to be ignorant. I am not willing that you are lacking in knowledge concerning this subject. You know, a failure, or uh, the doctrine of the rapture, the doctrine of Christ's imminent return. We often say uh, that he's coming soon, but he's been coming soon for the last 2,000 years. It's really better to think of it as he's coming suddenly. I don't know about you, but soon almost gives me the impression that I got a little more time to maybe do what I want to do. But when I think about him suddenly coming, that makes me realize <laughs> I need to be on my toes because I have no idea when he's coming back. It could be the next two minutes. It could be in the next two years. I have no idea. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, lacking in knowledge concerning the doctrine of the rapture. Folks, what we are looking at here over these next weeks is something that should be understood and heeded and enjoyed by every single believer. Okay, we need to get a hold of that. It doesn't matter if you are a homemaker. It doesn't matter if you are a, uh, a workman in a secular job. You see, sometimes what we do lazily or perhaps even just uh, unknowingly is sometimes we'll think, well, that's the preacher's job. Or, yeah, that's the teacher's job to really understand that. I'll just go over here to something more easily understood. No, 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 no. God wants every single Christian, young and old, Okay? No matter what your occupation is, no matter what you do to understand what we're looking at. So if you and I struggle with this, or if you find this difficult to understand, really ask the Lord to open up your heart to this doctrine of Christ's imminent return, the rapture as we would call it. And let him guide you through the scriptures. Maybe dig a little deeper. Study it. Ask some questions. Do not be content to be ignorant. Because Paul says, God says through Paul, I would not. It is not my will that you should be lacking in knowledge is the idea in this subject. But it's also true that God doesn't want you and I to lack knowledge in any area of Bible doctrine. Okay, because look what it leads to. So as Paul says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep or dead in Christ is the idea, as the context will reveal. That ye sorrow not. So there were some in the church at Thessalonica who were depressed thinking, wow, those who have died in faith in Christ, they're, they're perished. Now you say, well, you know, how did they get infected, infected with that doctrine? I don't know. God doesn't tell us. But there were some who were sorrowing like, they're going to miss out. If, 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 if we don't, uh, those who have died before Jesus came back, somehow they're going to miss out on spiritual or heavenly blessings. Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't sorrow. Don't sorrow about that. Like others, like the world, people who have no hope. 
You see, a failure to understand scriptural doctrine can lead to needless sorrow and, because of that, consequent failure. Do you realize there are some things about you, that you and I sorrow over in life that we don't need to? Simply because we do not really understand what the Bible has to say about that subject? You know, we find ourselves <clears throat> in a difficult situation in life. Maybe we find ourselves in a, a divorce situation or some sin where we have, uh, where it just, it plagues us and we feel burdened about it. And we're like, man, I'm just, I'm never going to be free from this. Or uh, my, I'm in a, a, a lost cause or I'm in a hopeless situation. You know, we don't have to be that way. Consider Romans chapter 6 where it tells us that sin shall no more reign in our mortal bodies. You know, sometimes a lack and an ignorance of what the Bible says can lead me to be depressed about something I don't need to be depressed about. And so it's important. It is vital that I understand what my Bible says, doctrinally speaking, not just on the rapture, but in all things. Turn to uh, Psalm 119 with me, if you would. Psalm 119. Let's consider what the psalmist has to say about knowing the scriptures and the joy and the liberty that that brings. Psalm 119, verse 45. The psalmist writes, I believe it's Ezra. If you have a different opinion, that's fine. It really doesn't matter. But he says, and I will walk at liberty. Look at that. I will walk at liberty. Oh, the Bible's so narrow and so confining. And it, uh, it takes away my liberty and keeps me from doing what I want to do. That's not what the psalmist thought. Because you see, in the knowledge of God, there is great liberty. I'm liberated from my flesh my selfish desires, and I can have the, I am set at liberty to live for God and serve other people. You think that's, now that's restricting to the flesh, but it is liberating to the spirit. And to live that way is true liberty. The world is the one that's in bondage who would say we are in bondage. Now they're in bondage to their sin and they're in bondage to, the, to Satan, in bondage to their flesh, in bondage to their old man. But the psalmist says, I will walk at liberty for I seek thy precepts. He goes on and says, And I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved. And I will meditate in thy statutes. Here's a man who encourages you and me. Do not be ignorant about what the Bible has to say. Because it is important. We could end up sorrowing needlessly being depressed about things we need not be depressed about. Great peace, verse 165, have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Psalm 119. Great peace have they which love thy law. Great peace. You see, these folks were sorrowing at Thessalonica over something that simply wasn't true, but to them it was very true. How many times have you and I been misled by our feelings? Well, we were just absolutely sure something was so because it felt so true in our hearts, right? The old Hollywood adage, follow your heart, boy, that will lead you to some serious problems. I have been so convinced in my mind that something was true only to find out it absolutely was not. And then bewildered as to how I could be so deceived. Well, that's my wicked heart. Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So a failure to understand scripture... Scriptural doctrine, not just the doctrine of the rapture, but any doctrine, can lead to needless sorrow and failure. Uh, failure to understand and apply the Bible can also lead a believer to behaving like an unbeliever 
perhaps even unintentionally, not even maliciously, but it just happens. He said that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. So the Thessalonians were actually acting like the world, sorrowing over those who had died. You know, not that we shouldn't be grieved about the fact that we've lost a loved one, but we need not sit around depressed thinking that's it, because that's not it. Okay? But that's what they were doing, just like the heathenistic Romans and Greeks of their time. And so not knowing my Bible can lead me to acting just like the world, even unintentionally. So let's keep our nose in the book and let's keep ourselves uh, studying the scriptures and allowing God to teach us each and every day. I cannot comfort people with truths of which I am ignorant. And I can't help people with tools that I don't know how to use. Right? I have four toolboxes at work full of very good tools that will help me get a tractor apart and back together in the minimal amount of time. And I have to know how to use every single one of them. Because if I do not know how to use them, when I'm fighting underneath that engine trying to reach a bolt, and there's a tool in my toolbox that will help me get it out, but I don't know how to use it, my job isn't any easier, right? And so know the book. And so before we get off that uh, subject, let me challenge you and I with this. I want you to think to yourself, because only you and your heart, between you and God, know the answer to this. What is it in the Bible that scares you the most that you don't understand? Maybe it's a particular book. Maybe it's a particular doctrine. You're like, man, I am just lost on pneumatology, the study of the spirit. Or I am lost on homardiology, the study of sin. Or I just do not understand Christology, the study of Christ and his character. Or I just hate the book of Song of Solomon because I have no idea what it's saying. What scares you the most in the Bible? Okay? Now you've got that thought. Now let me challenge you with this. Take that to Jesus and ask him in particular to help you understand that better. Whatever it is that might scare you. In order to be obedient to this exhortation of I would not have you to be ignorant. Okay? So that's between you and the Lord. Whatever it may be. Whatever it may be. And allow him to direct you down a path of understanding that better. The best place to start is to get in the word and start reading and studying whatever it is that you struggle with. Maybe find a good book, but be careful with that. Make sure it's from the right person who knows their Bible and has got the right doctrine themselves. Um, but whatever it may be, that is a challenge for you and I. Because there are some confidences in this book that we need to get a hold of. So we seize Paul's confidence. Do not be ignorant. Paul's concern, excuse me. Next, we see Paul's confidence in verses 14 and 15. And uh, the encouragement for you and I in this, it looks like my slide's a little off there. We can have confidence in the sure return of Christ is what that should say. We can have confidence in the sure return of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on and says in verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, now, he's not saying, well, if you believe, then this is true. And if you don't want to believe, then that's okay. The world would look at the Bible and say, well, if you want to believe that, that's fine. You know, if that helps you be a better person, well, then you go ahead and believe that. But that doesn't mean that I have to, because it may not necessarily be true. It's all up to our interpretation. That's not what Paul's saying. That's the way the world thinks. This is a Greek phrase that I could literally translate without doing any damage to the scriptures whatsoever. I could easily translate it since. Paul is saying, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. 
The same phrase is found, remember when Satan was tempting Christ and he said, if thou be the son of God, command these stones that they may be made bread. He wasn't saying, well, there's some doubt as to whether or not you're the son of God. So if you really are, command these stones be made bread. No, he was sarcastically challenging Christ. Well, if you be the son of God. So he could have said, since you're the son of God, command these stones that they be made bread. That's the idea of this phrase here. It's a sure thing. It is a, a conditional sentence expressing a known fact. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep or are dead in Christ will God bring with him. So Paul does not say, you know, Jesus slept. He's very careful here because he's laying some groundwork. You see, Jesus died and rose again. And that is absolutely crucial to his overcoming the power of death and sin, which is crucial for his re ability to return and get us, right? Because he died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended to be with the Father, and he's coming back at any moment. So Paul's very careful with his language. Christ fully experienced death for you and me that he might fully overcome death and sin. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, if you want to turn there. Hebrews 2, 9, a verse with which we should all be familiar. Uh, in fact, I would encourage you to memorize Hebrews 2, 9 through the end of, of chapter 2, because it is a magnificent witnessing passage to give to people. Uh, consider the verse there where it says, who through fear of death, talking about people without Christ, were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. I mean, what a great passage to feed people. Anyway, I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail, but Hebrews 2, 9. Paul says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Not that he was inferior to the angels, but he subjected himself to a lower celestial position that he might perform works redemption for you and for me. He was made a little lower than the angels for, why? The suffering of death, that he, by the grace of God, now get this, should taste death. That is not simply a... I don't like that. Okay, There are things I taste that I'm like, no, nah, I don't think I want to eat that. And I throw it away. This is the idea of a full partaking. In fact, numerous times it's translated to eat something. Okay, To fully consume it. And so the idea is that Christ didn't just take a little taste of death and decide he didn't like it and threw it away and somehow didn't completely experience it. No, the idea is that he fully experienced death. Okay, That he, by the grace of God, should experience death for every man. And so he went down into the grave. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 19 said, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Okay, so he went into the grave, but he didn't stay there. And David prophesied that of Jesus Christ in Psalm 16. So it is absolutely crucial that we lay this foundation because without it we don't really have any confidence of Christ's power. So since we believe that Jesus died, fully died, and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. We can have hope because the resurrection of Christ is real. For without it, we really have no hope. Without the resurrection, Jesus is no better than Muhammad or he's no better than any other false prophet that's lived uh, throughout time. He's, he's no better than anyone else. And Paul lays the foundation for this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you'll turn there with me. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15. The best way to understand and apply Bible doctrine is to read it (laughs) over and over again and ask God to help you understand it and compare it with other scriptures. So we are going to be going, uh, doing a lot of back and forth throughout these lessons as we look at these various passages. Now look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, and Paul's presenting a, a hypothetical situation that's not true, but if it were true, he is expressing how disastrous it would be. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, there was some bad doctrine in the church at Corinth, and it had permeated, and there were people who thought that, you know, there is no such thing as a resurrection. I mean, there were folks who thought to be resurrected was a bad thing, because once you're free from this flesh, why would you want it to come back? And there were those who taught that. And so they taught, well, there's no physical resurrection. Why would you want this body to come back to life? It's already a mess. Not understanding that God would raise a new man with a new body, as Paul describes later in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. That there's a different kind of flesh. There's a flesh of birds, and there's a flesh of beasts, and there's there's a body celestial, and there's a body terrestrial. And why are you arguing about these things? And basically, can I sum it up? Don't be stupid, Paul says. (laughs) And so he comes along and he says, now... Why are there some saying that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. He says, we're a bunch of liars then, because I've been promoting this thing like crazy. I guess I'm a liar. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Now get this. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. So the same false doctrine was plaguing the Thessalonians. How it got there, I have no idea. Uh, Look how easily false doctrine is spread around in our day. It's not hard to wonder how it happened. If in this life only we have hope. So if, if, if we only, you know, if, if this physical life is all there is to Christianity and all I have to look for, uh, if, if my looking forward to Christ only involves this life, I am of all men most miserable because I have to separate from the world in this life since I belong to Christ. And I miss out on all that it has to give me. If there's nothing better coming, then I am a very miserable individual. Especially consider Paul's situation because he was persecuted and he was beaten and he was thrown out of places and he was excommunicated and he was tortured and he was starved and he was shipwrecked and on and on goes the list. He's like, I am of all men most miserable if this is not true. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. What's the idea of first fruits? Well, the idea is, if I can put it very simply, he's the very first one who ever rose from the dead under his own power and completely conquered it. And because he did, all we have to do is just follow him into heaven. We don't have to do anything else. And so he says he is the first fruits of them that slept. I love what Jesus said about his power and his ability to rise from the dead in John 10, verse 17 and 18. Anybody remember that? He said, no man taketh it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of myself. He says, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. 
Nobody put Christ on the cross in, in the term of power. He put himself there. And he allowed the wickedness of men to, in the end, glorify his holy name. There's nothing that we can do, my friends. He has accomplished it all. We are simply following him into heaven. Look at uh, Revelation 1.5. Now remember, we're still, so we don't lose track here, we're still considering the confidence of Christ being uh, powerful over sin and death and that he rose from the dead and he's coming again. He's going to bring the risen, or the, the saints who have passed on, he's going to bring them with, them with him and unite them with their new celestial bodies. But look at Revelation 1.5. Considering how Christ has washed us and redeemed us and opened the gate of heaven for us and risen from the dead. Look at verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you in peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and I love this phrase, and the first begotten of the dead. You see, when the Bible calls Christ the first begotten of God, it's not saying, well, God just, you know, he had him as a physical son. He's not really God. He's a lesser being. No, 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 no. It's the idea of a place of position when it says the first begotten. It's primarily focusing on the position of Christ. He is number one in the eyes of the Father Amen. because he is God. And he is number one over death because he's the one that conquered it. He went down into it. He nullified its power and he came back out of it the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, I've got to explain this word wash real quick. Just bear with me. Remember when Peter said, Lord, thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I wash thee not, thou hast no place with me. And Peter said, oh, not my head, oh, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. What did Jesus say to him? He said, he that is washed, he that is luo, okay, it's a Greek word, he that is luo need not save to wash or nipto his feet. Okay, so one is a full body washing and one is the idea of washing the extremities. Jesus used two different words. Need not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you're all clean, but not all, because Judas was betrayer. So the idea is, look, you've already been sanctified, Peter. You've already been washed by the water of the word. You've already been washed. Your soul's been washed through faith in my name. But daily, you are going to have to wash yourself through the scriptures and allow God to cleanse you daily from sin. Okay? The word luo is what God uses here in Revelation when he says, you and I have been washed. You've received a full body washing. And because of that, the saints that have passed on in Christ are coming back, and we who are alive and remain will meet him uh, and them in the air. We have been washed. In this, we find eternal security. You say, well, you know, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I never really thought of that as a place to find eternal security. Well, yeah, but consider this. Paul said, even so them also which are asleep in Jesus, will God bring with him? By the way, he's calling Jesus God here. I thought that was interesting. Amen. He's calling Jesus God. <laughs> why not? It's a seamless, use the term seamlessly, Jesus, God, why not? They're coming together. It's one and the same. But anyway, he says, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. This term sleep is often used in the New Testament for those who have died in Christ. Okay? Not exclusively, but that is a very large majority of how you see it used. Now, in 1 Corinthians, we find a group of believers, a motley group, who had some serious problems. Problems that you and I struggle with every single day. Let's begin on our high horse. 
There were problems of unclean thinking, problems of, uh, of cliques, problems of exalting men, problems of uh, wanting revenge, problems of uh, a lack of sanctification, problems with trying to hold hands with the world, problems of wanting to be accepted with the world, problems of making a mockery of the things of God. I don't know about you, but I, I, I identify with a lot of those things. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians 11.30, because they had profaned the Lord's Supper. They were eating unworthily. Remember they were coming and making it a big drunken orgy, basically. And, oh, it stinks to be you. I've got more food than you. And, oh, wouldn't you wish you were me? And over there drinking and eating and being merry. And poor Joe Blow over here has got nothing but a, a half a loaf of bread, you know. And, and Paul says, because of that, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Many had fallen asleep in Christ. In a sin, I mean, they died doing wrong things, but they fell asleep in Christ. Well, even those folks, God will bring with him. Because you see, it isn't me keeping my salvation or doing something to maintain my salvation. It's already been maintained by Christ. Now, yes, I will lose rewards according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I guarantee you the poor uh, Corinthian believers who, who died uh, doing wrong things lost rewards. But that doesn't mean that they lost their salvation. Even them, God will bring with him. And I find in that eternal security that I can fail and not do what I need to do. But in the end... Jesus will never fail and will hold me safe. For I am persuaded, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor death, nor life, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature, including myself, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, that is an encouraging thing to consider as we go down through this, uh, this book. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord... <clears throat> That we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now the idea of prevent is to precede or to go before. In fact, sometimes it's translated the idea of coming upon suddenly. And so Paul's saying, look, we don't have any kind of precedence of blessedness over those who have died in Christ. Don't be confused. Stop, stop being depressed. We are not somehow going to have it better than those who have passed on. In fact, just the opposite. They're already with Jesus. And when he comes back in the clouds, as we'll see here next lesson, Lord willing, when he comes back in the clouds, they'll be there with him and they'll be reunited with a celestial body. And we're going to talk about not getting wrapped around the axle about people that have been cremated or lost at sea or any of that nonsense because Paul describes the stupidity of get, getting into that argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay, but somehow God's going to reunite them with a new risen body, a celestial body, like unto himself, whatever that is, and we'll all meet the Lord in the air. And so we won't have any precedence over those who have gone before us. Okay. And that's what the word prevent means. But Paul notice here, as we consider this confidence that he's coming again. Notice he lists how many events prior to the imminent return of Christ. In other words, what does he say has to happen before Christ will immediately come back? Nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. I saw again the other day, uh, by accident, someone again. Now, I would not have thought, man, you know, these people are no better. Someone who I thought should know better. Talking about how the world events are lining up and Jesus is going to come back real soon. The world events have been lining up for yeah. decades. 
and you know, I, I, I supported President Trump and I still support him and, and, uh, and uh, I liked him better than what we have now, by all means, don't get me wrong, but he is not some kind of milestone to Jesus' return. Get, get, wake up, you know, wake up. And so Christ isn't coming back soon, he's coming back suddenly. Everything's already been in place and Paul lists absolutely zero events that must take place before Jesus comes back. We'll get into this more, but that is one reason why you and I would gravitate firmly toward a pre-tribulational rapture. Because if we had the tribulation, we would have milestones to be able to guess the return of Jesus Christ. But Paul does not list anything like that. In fact, he will start talking about in chapter 5 the events of the tribulation after what he has described here. I'm giving away all my points as to why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, by the way. And so um, nothing else must take place before the Lord comes back. In fact, Paul was convinced by the way he wrote here that we which are alive and remain, that he'd seemed, he was pretty sure Jesus would be coming back in his lifetime. Or at least he was certainly ready for it. But uh, we know that that did not happen because only he knows the hour and only he knows the time. So, we have this confidence. The return of our Savior is imminent. What should that really do for you and me? You know, if, if we want to make the rapture very practical, how does this really help me in my Christian life? If nothing else, it should do at least two things. It should really encourage you that at any moment you could be liberated from this mess. <laughs> Including the mess, the biggest mess is yourself. Okay? At any moment, you could be liberated from this mess and this mess, but it should also do something else other than encourage you. It should scare you in a good way. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him is purifying himself, is the idea. Purifieth himself, even as he is pure and then John goes on and I love John because he's such a bold say it as it is writer he that commit a sin is of the devil the devil sinned from the beginning you know you don't want anything part to, you don't want any part of that and so it should do an, uh, at least two things encourage me and scare me in a good way and incite me to holy living Amen. it should make me want to be a better steward of what God's given me whether it be physical possessions family friends, a ministry, a job, because we all have those things, whether we know it or not, it should incite me to holy living. And so we have a confidence, my friends. Let it encourage us and let, us in, let it um, incite us to holy living. So with the Lord's help, we'll pick up the rest of this next week. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the doctrine of your return that we call the rapture. We know it could happen at any moment. And uh, Lord, we do just simply pray that you would encourage our hearts with this and help us not to sorrow about things, Lord, that we do not need to sorrow about. Uh, Lord, uh, encourage us and help us, we pray, to, to, be more, um, to be more familiar with the scriptures, that we wouldn't needlessly sorrow over things that are not a problem for the believer, that we would not miss out on promises and blessings that you've clearly described in your word. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, take these things seriously and allow them to encourage us to a better lifestyle, a more spirit-filled lifestyle.
not for any purposes of self-righteousness, but so that you could be honored and so that other people could be helped and encouraged to draw near, uh, near to Jesus. And so we pray these things, and we thank you for uh, the scriptures. We thank you for guiding us uh, through your word this morning, and thank you for your help and wisdom. Uh, we certainly need it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.